Hi, my name is Amanda Pettigrew, and I am a faculty member here at Moraine Valley, and I also coach the speech team. So um, I just want to say a big thank you to Troy and the rest of the library staff for having us to be part of, uh, you know, this book reading because we are so honored to be such a powerful um, voice to these survivors. Annie Clark and Andrea Pino's book, We Believe You, Survivors of Sexual Assault Speak Out, give voice to those who are often shrouded in guilt and shame, and they're afraid to use their own voices. Unfortunately, it's common in our rape culture to use myths such as um, that center around blaming the victim and empowering perpetrators. So one such myth centers around asking survivors, what were you wearing? As if the clothing contributed to the assault. In recent years, there's been an art exhibit on various different college campuses that answer this question. I'd like to share with you the poem which inspired the powerful installation, a poem by Mary Simmerling, What I Was Wearing. Was this, from the top, a white t-shirt, cotton, short sleeve, and round at the neck. This was tucked into a jean skirt, also cotton, ending just above the knees, and belted at the top. Underneath all of this was a white bra and white underpants, though probably not a set. On my feet, white tennis shoes, the kind one plays tennis in, and then finally silver earrings and lip gloss. This is what I was wearing that day, that night, on July 4th in 1987. You may be wondering why this matters, or even how I remember every item in such detail. You see, I've been asked this question many times. It has been called to my mind many times. This question, this answer, these details. But my answer, much awaited, much anticipated, seems flat somehow, given the rest of the details. Of that night, during which at some point I was raped. And I wonder what answer, what details, would give comfort, could give comfort, to you, my questioners. Seeking comfort where there is, alas, no comfort to be found. If it were so simple, if only we could end rape by simply changing our clothes. I remember also what he was wearing that night. It's true, but no one has ever asked. It is time that we dispense with these myths and show support for those who have survived. They've survived an attack on their bodies, on their minds, on their very well-being. To answer the question, we, all of us standing up here, have worn outfits described by assault survivors. This is what I was wearing. Many years have passed, the clothes have long been thrown away, but this is what I was wearing, a hoodie, comfy jeans, tennis shoes. And it's for that reason that we give voice to survivors so that they know that they're not alone. If anything in the presentation today uh, triggers anybody, if you feel like you have a strong emotional reaction, uh, we do have a counselor here today, um, Suzanne Neeser, she's here in the front. She's more than willing to speak with anybody who might need to speak with her, okay? Uh, so now we are gonna do readings from Annie Clark and Andrea Pino's book, We Believe You. Our first reading is going to be from Haley Carrero.
The Teal Forks Timeline by Fabiana Diaz. 3.53 a.m. It was hard enough trying to fall asleep. Now I seem to be waking up every hour, tossing and turning my brain on fire. I know it isn't illegal, and we did mention it to the vice president, and she even gave us the money we used to fork the quad, the most central location on our campus where at least 10,000 students walk every day. So there's no way we can get in trouble for this, right? 4.57 a.m. I might as well get up. My alarm's going to go off in three minutes anyway. It's still pitch black outside. Perfect. Forking the quad. 1,200 forks in all, each fork representing approximately five sexual assault survivors on campus. 5.05 a.m. I shower, thinking about the number. 5,806 survivors. The fact that we have almost 6,000 survivors on this campus is a scary thought, but not shocking. It makes sense. One in four women is a survivor of sexual assault by the time she graduates. I never thought that I would become one of those statistics. Six o'clock AM. Everyone is on time. We gather around, hand out buckets, and I yell, let's go. As my knees drop to the cold, wet ground, I begin to fork. The first one is for me. The next one is for my sister. The one after that is for my mom. Next, for my best friend. And then one for my coworker, for my resident, for my roommate. I have someone in particular on my mind each time I drive a fork into the ground. Holding back tears, I look around. Rain starts to pour down, but everyone keeps on forking. As more and more students arrive to help, I feel I'm swimming in a pool of survivors, and for once, I do not feel alone. 7.53 a.m. Students starting their normal routine, coffee in one hand, phones attached to the other, begin to look up and assess their surroundings. A couple wander over to read our signs. Then I see this young student who looks a bit lost or maybe sleepy. We make eye contact and she walks down toward me. As I slowly get up, she kneels down, grabs a fork, whispering, for me, and burst into tears. I embrace and hold her as we sit on the grass sobbing. Two strangers united through painful memories and emerging stronger from the pain. 1.10 p.m. It's time to type up all my notes in detail before I forget any of my interactions or experiences throughout these difficult hours. As I type, everything seems to flow. I realize how much of this process has been healing. For once, I was forced to react and let my emotions be instead of holding them all back. I let myself feel. 3.07 p.m. The unexpected happens. As I sit in the front of my computer in the middle of the library, I see him, my assailant. I don't think he sees me right away. My first thought is to get out as quickly as I can. My heart rate is increasing, my blood is boiling. Don't let him see me cry. He does see me, though, and this turns into a game of cat and mouse for him. He taunts me, coming right up behind me without saying a word. I freeze. Looking up, I see him in front of me, with only an iMac separating us. But it isn't enough for him. He needs to get more out of me, as if what he's already done is not enough. He decides that out of all the 250 computers, he needs to sit at the one right next to me. I realize in this moment how much he has altered my life. How every day I make decisions based on that one night, my first night on campus. I was a naive high on my newfound freedom and I felt like I had the whole world at my fingertips. 
until he forced himself onto me, slammed my face into the dorm room mattress and left me there, alone and naked. But now, enough is enough. I decide to bear it through. I want to be the cat and he can be the mouse. I feel it becoming uncomfortable for him. Uncomfortable. After everything, that is the least I can make him feel. 11.53 p.m. For 5,806 survivors, 1,200 teal forks. They healed me. From the Elegy of I, Sarai Rachel Forshner. As a child, I was defined by delicious, rollicking peels of silliness. These were a great source of frustration for my elders. Get a hold of yourself. Enough. They thought that unabashed joy would be an obstacle to my success, that my success was more important. But I knew I could allow myself to reveal in my wholehearted amusement in life and still smile sweetly as I received my A's. How utterly fun I was. My personality was too big for the everyday, so I brought it to the stage. My classmates voted me to play Anne Frank. I was Ebenezer Scrooge, Poe's Red Death, and the Crucible's seductive Abigail Williams. I could be anyone, but I delighted in playing the villain. It was so freeing to express fury without fear of repercussion. I sought challenge. I sought criticism. Thank you for the compliment, but tell me what I can do better. I ricocheted between silence and silliness. I was lustful. I was idealistic. I loved fiercely and hated little. I was buying a stack of folders and pencils at Target, and the woman in line in front of me assumed I was a teacher rather than a student. Taken aback, I doubled over in laughter. By the time I left for college, I had worked at a cell phone store for just shy of two years. At 18, I was the employee with the most seniority and the key holder for two locations. No one else wanted to deal with the boss. One by one, they quit or were fired. I insisted he stopped calling me babe and kept a private record of my own sales. When he tried to short me on my commissions, I argued on my own behalf. I devoured books. That was who I was. Laughter, lover, reader, actress, student. From Accepting Entropy by Liz Wiederhold. When I was in sixth grade, my dad retired from the Army after spending 20 years thriving as a faithful disciple of aerospace engineering. His passion for this field was as limitless as space itself. At bedtimes during my childhood, I would ask him which star he liked best, and he would regale me with facts about Betelgeuse, the red supergiant, the Goliath of the night sky, whose surface is shrouded by a complex, dissymmetrical cancerous cloak, an overgrowth of incalculable mass loss. He emphasized how this crimson runaway's stellar evolution will end in a triumphant death as a supernova within the next million years, and how this twinkling leviathan's winds are piercing the circumambient interstellar medium. My dad almost continuously groomed my affection for science with his romantic insight into current research, but this behemoth of a bard did not know that, although I loved his intergalactic beignets, I rarely, if ever, fully understood him. My dad's emotional latitude, coupled with his boundless wonder, made him a difficult person to know. 
He rarely talked about himself and rarely asked me about myself, choosing instead to swaddle me in safety in a blanket of concepts, protected there from our infallibilities, fears, and failures. But my freshman year of college, I was entrenched in suicidal melancholy, unable to stop reliving the details of a rape. This rape had too recently launched me from a sprightly, naive undergraduate ready to find my place in this world to a mere nebula of that glowing girl, now cool, dying, and swollen, cold into a vortex of distaste for myself and for men. I was scared. I was angry. I was reduced to a fractured skeleton of my former self, and worst of all, I was alone. The educational ecosystem in which I had flourished and into which I had been ushered by my dad's careful, intellectual company was now polluted with deathless shame, a certainty of self-defeat, and a simmering resentment of authority. A barrage of questions, which I never voiced, orbited within me as the magnitude of my pain reached its climax. Could I have done anything to prevent this? Did I do something to provoke this? How could I fix this? But sound doesn't travel through space. I felt I had lost so much. I had lost opportunities to relish the last days of my childhood. I had lost friends, and I had lost fights. Worst of all, I had lost the vision of my future, and I had lost my once close companionship with my dad, who seemed as distant, as impossible, and as unattainable as outer space. Once my dad had pro-offered biographies of the visible heavens that lifted me into an untroubled sleep, now I was too choked by my misery to ask my dad about my own biography. Why had a man raped me? My dad sang his lullabies no more. After the rape, it took nearly 10 years for me to realize that my dad could not teach me how to heal. No finite string of warm words could ever articulate the distresses, relief, bewilderment, burdens, and fury that, for years, governed my pursuit of self-actualization. I am certain now that my dad knew that, and that his own question haunted him and his own grief stayed unacknowledged in either of our cracked relationship. Although my dad knows about my rape, he and I will never have a conversation about it, and we likely never will. But he is not the enemy. He is my buried hero. He was the first good man I ever knew, the antithesis of my rapist, and the one who gave me 18 years of unconditional love before the perversion of my virtue and virginity. His love winnowed the mass of truths I couldn't face yet. It distanced me from the depravity of the act, and it is nuclear fuel for my endurance through life still. Only now, as a teacher myself, do I recognize that my dad translated the data he aggregated from his vast knowledge of space into a narrative that reflected themes of life and death, love and loss, sickness and health, injury, persecution, injustice, and faith. Though he spoke of the stars, he had all along been answering those questions I once thought he ignored. No matter how corrosive and insidious some truths, the narrative of the night sky can be my compass after all. My dad helped me grow up, grow past, move forward, heal, survive. The Surprising Bravery of Others, Anonymous V. While I was going through the hearings, I had really bad panic attacks, ripping out my hair, sobbing. My friends had to see that, and there was nothing they could do. They couldn't even call my parents. So a lot of my friendships took really big hits. Some of my friends stood by me, but others said, understandably, this is too difficult and I can't take it. 
They were powerless, watching me self-destruct. And I'm very sorry for that. And there's not a way for me to make amends there. When you're in that moment, you think it's only happening to you, but it's not. It's a whole village going through that. My roommates were phenomenal. Scary stuff happened that spring. When I went back, I didn't want my friends to have to check on me, which they did, though at the time I didn't even realize it. I did not like myself in the year and a half following my assault, though I'm beginning to now. I was not a good friend or a good daughter, but by and large, the people in my life haven't let me give the apology I feel I need to, because my actions were understandable, not my fault, or it was such a hard time. Whenever I speak to a reporter and am characterized as brave or write a piece and receive feedback calling me strong, I feel like I have fundamentally misled that person in a serious way. I do not see myself as strong or brave. The people in my life who stuck by me are brave and strong and resilient. I don't really have a choice. I'm 21 and not particularly ready to hole up in my room for the rest of forever. So I had to find a way to incorporate my assault into my new reality. The people in my life did have a choice daily, and they chose to stay, and they helped me rebuild. Some had to leave along the way for their own mental health, but all of them at least tried to stay and help. That is bravery. I think I've learned gratitude from all of this, but I'm not always able to express it, and people certainly don't let me because they think I've had a lot worse. Bravery to me looks like my roommate driving me to a psychiatric hospital my junior year, playing One Direction and talking about who she should ask to a semi-formal, as if we were driving to a mall, trying to make the experience seem normal when it was in no way normal. It was a Sunday night, and when she returned to campus, she had deadlines that she wouldn't be excused from. Bravery looks like my friends who answered calls to walk me to class and had to choose whether to say something they thought might be soothing or try to distract me. Being strong looks like my brother supporting me when I was self-centered, erratic, and a tornado of emotions. That is okay, and it is understandable, given what I went through. But I think it's also okay to feel remorse for what I put my loved ones through. No matter how justifiable your behavior is, you don't want to cause your friends and family pain. I hate that in my first attempt at a relationship after the assault, though it was never defined as a relationship in formal terms, my assailant was in bed with us, and that was really hard on the new, caring guy. My mom and dad walked on eggshells around me when they found out about the assault. Professors wanted to cut me slack, but I let them down time and time again with deadlines. It's hard because all of my actions are protective and explainable by trauma, but they still impacted other people in real ways. I wasn't pleasant to be around. I feel guilt. I think there's some disconnect between how rape survivors are painted in the media and how we feel. I feel like I was pretty destructive to be around. From the Elegy of I, Sarah Rachel Forshner. My sophomore year at USC, I was drugged and raped in the middle of the road. I thought it was cut and dried. I thought I could decide how to handle it and that I would decide not to be a victim. I had always made my own decisions. This would not be different. I would get stitches in the head wound and buy the morning after pill. I would be grateful that the drugs had taken my memory and I would move on. Something horrible had happened to me, but the people I loved would acknowledge that and I would not change. 
The people in charge would acknowledge that. The doctors would be well-trained. The law would stand on my side. Something horrible had happened. It was simple. I would remain myself. But our society doesn't work that way. And if you spend enough time being told that you lost nothing and that nothing happened to you, even though you know that something did, you often lose the agency to simply decide. You change. My reality shattered and I became someone else. I had such clarity once, a deep understanding of my own self. I loved that little girl, bright and strong and complicated as she was. Strange, but sure, so very sure. She is in a coma now, and I do not know if she will ever wake up. I do not say that she is dead, not yet. There is enough of her still for me to be ashamed of the fact that she and I are not the same. Some mornings, she smiles in her sleep. Some weeks, I can't find her. I have become someone who no one knows. I do not even know who it is that I have become. I can only imitate the girl I was. I can only fall short. Even my body has become alien. My generous breasts have become grotesque. Permanently larger as a side effect of post-rape treatment, those symbols of my sensuality are now little more than a reminder. My body swells. 10 pounds, 20, 25, 50. Fat and frustrated, fearful of my own naked body and unable to trust, I lost all outlets for my lust. I exude false exuberance. My own strength is an insult to me. I've grown strong because I've had to. I demonstrate strength because it is what other people need to see. I do not feel strong. Dear Abuelita, by Andrea Pino. Dear Abuelita, I have a big secret. I was raped. I'm sorry I never told you, but I can't find the strength to ever say those words in your language, in our language. Abuelita, I dropped out of college. It's a secret that only a few people know, but I carry it like I'm wearing shackles every day. The truth is, I feel like I'm a failure sometimes. I feel as if I let them win, and I feel as if I've let generations of Pinos, Silvas, Mireños, Villafueras, and Cabreras down. But Abuelita, I'm afraid to speak with you because I'm afraid you may say, me too. It's difficult for me to realize that so many that I love have been assaulted. They were scared and embarrassed to tell their story, afraid that their friends would be disappointed. I too felt that way. I was raised with high morals like you, with a life enlaced in strong religious duties that always led me to believe that a woman was to be pure till marriage. I did not have that choice, Abuelita. It's easy for me to channel this anger into writing, but to explain it is to feel it in a constant cycle, to feel those weeks of denial and of refusal to accept that it was not my fault and that I am still whole. This is why I can never share this letter with you. Along the journey, I felt like one of my many numbers of Latinas who have been sexually assaulted. And just like my sister's families, my family knew nothing of what happened to me. I wore the veil of a victim for weeks before I could remove it and accept that I was a survivor. But I now know that I am not alone in my silence, nor am I alone in my determination to break it. 
I want you to know that nothing you did brought violence on me, but that I consider you my guide. It was you who worked tirelessly to bring our family to come to this country, and it's you who has given me the world. Yo soy una mujer, abuelita, and it's thanks to you that I am the woman I am today. I am smiling because I am a survivor, and I am healing every day. I am a survivor, abuelita. I don't know if you will ever read this letter, and I am sorry that I'm not ready to put these words down in Espanol, but I want you to know that I am strong, I am fighting, and I hope that you are proud of me. Te amo, abuelita. Tu primer nieta, Andrea. Slowly you start forgetting. Anonymous V. Slowly you start forgetting. Then one day you realize you haven't been thinking about the assault all day. Then one week you can't remember the exact date of your hearing or an appeal or the way a letter from a dean was worded. You start to forget. You feel a bit guilty. If you're forgetting, maybe it wasn't as traumatic as you said it was. Shouldn't this be burned into your memory? Then you start to feel lighter. It is nice to not have these images readily available 24-7. It is nice to go back to daydreaming or to more recent memories. Then you feel a bit hopeful, like here is a new beginning. Then you feel unsure. What is the new beginning? That's where I am now. I had my life before this assault. I had my life after the assault. Now I think I'm in my life after the after. I'm again in a new territory where I'm no longer measuring things in first. First time I've had sex since the rape, first time I've gone back to school since the rape, or thinking in terms of before that night and after that night. So I'm trying to navigate this new territory now and figure out who I am as someone who has integrated rape survivor into her person but is no longer consumed by it. It's a little bit frightening, honestly after this singular event having defined so much of my values, thoughts, and even activism and aspirations over the past almost two years. But it is also freeing. The After. Sarib Rachel Forshner. Never again will I be that bright little person from before, poised on the brink of life, poised, without the knowledge of how terrible the world can truly be. Recovery is not waking up in the morning and everything is back to normal, but recovery exists. It is waking up one morning and your body is not a reminder, it is not repulsive, it is not broken. Recovery is having rape remain only in the back of your mind instead of in all of it. I cannot promise you that sex you have will only be easy and fun, that you will never need to stop in the middle because you can't breathe, because you need to cry in the bathroom again, because you are supposed to be young and adventurous, but everything still scares you sometimes. I can promise you only this, change. I can promise you progress. I can promise you that it is possible to look in the mirror and really stop blaming yourself someday. It is possible to stop thinking that you are shattered beyond repair or not worth loving anymore. It is possible to find someone who does not mind any of it, who knows that none of this is who you are. It is only what happened to you. I must begin in the darkness 
so as to show how light the light is, to understand how far the be from the beginning the now is. I must pause in the middle of the race, not to reflect on the fact that the finish line is still too far away for comfort, but to turn back and realize that I also have to squint to see where I began. I must start with loss. I must mourn the girl child whose ignorance really was bliss. Then the woman with head trauma, heart trauma, trauma of the soul, so that I can show you that no matter how obscure the night is, no matter the depths of depression or the heights of panic, it is still possible for there to be a morning. Someday, when you celebrate the person you have become, when you stop trying so damn hard to imitate who you used to be, because you're starting ever so slowly to prefer who you are. Hi, my name is Izzy Calderon, and I'm going to be reading my own personal story about my sexual self. The Unoptional Journey by Izzy Calderon. Can't they see that this isn't living? I'm running on autopilot, and I don't know when my plane will finally run out of gas. I don't know if my plane will just stop in the middle of the sky. I can see it falling to the earth. It falls slowly and with a type of grace. It hits the ground and bursts alive with fire. Broken metal pieces fly in the air with such speed. Everything is in ruins. Black smoke covers the bright blue sky. There's no sound or smell, only the sight of a horrific plane crash. I can't do anything about it. I can picture this playing out so easily in my head, but still it doesn't seem real. I can see myself falling down this dark hole of depression, just like I can so easily see my plane crashing. Still, it doesn't seem real. I sit on a warm sandy beach, somewhere far, far away from Chicago. My curly hair gently dances in the breeze. The sun hugs me with its rays as the ocean softly touches my toes. The crystal clear water glitters from the sun's light. I breathe in the fresh air and am filled with peace. Everything is calm. The, the beach, the ocean, and even me. But I am not on a beach somewhere far, far away from Chicago. I am laying in my bed while he holds my arms down and sweats in my face. I wish I was on a calm beach somewhere far, far away. I think of beaches now, during this horrible moment, but what will I think of for the rest of my life? Can I just replace this speck in time with one of a tropical vacation on some beach? I wiggle my hands free and start to scratch and slap and punch. My mouth pushes spit into his face. Angrily, he gets up and leaves. He just leaves. See, he can leave somewhere far, far away from Chicago, but I am stuck here on this island of isolation. A place that I once thought was so beautiful now is ruined and becomes my prison. Fast forward a few months from there, and I'm sitting in the district attorney's office in the Bridgeview Courthouse. This place is depressing, I think the tacky carpet and old wallpaper. Tell me what is about to happen. I'm, he I'm about to hear old news, the same news that most other women hear, that their case is not going to trial. Nothing changes, not men, not the laws, and not this dusty office. Anxiously, I sit on the bright yellow hole-filled couch with my dad and wait to be called into a smaller office to hear my fate. Finally, I sit down with the district attorney's assistant and a social worker to discuss what is to become of my case in a tiny square office. Shelves with misplaced papers and unorganized books line the walls. This is where I'll find out what happens to my case, in a shack of an office. I'm sure this office is as ashamed of itself as I am. 
I tell my dad to sit out on the yellow couch because the pain of him hearing about what happened was too much for me to handle. Respectfully, he sits outside on the yellow couch, and I can see him through the one window in the shabby office. I look everywhere but into the eyes of people who really don't care what becomes of me. You should have taken a picture, he says. Maybe if someone recorded what happened, she says. We can get you free help, but that's about it, they both say. We will not take your case, he says with no remorse. These are the words that are burned into my brain by the people that I thought were supposed to help me. Don't they get it? That picture of what happened is forever on display in my mind. The feeling of his hands holding me down lingered for so long that I thought he was still holding me down even months after the crime he committed. I left the shabby little office, completely defeated. My dad looked up from his phone, our eyes locked, and he just knew. I quickly told my dad that it was time to go home and rushed out in the hallway to get to the escalators. I held back tears and choked on my sobs while speed walking to my dad's pickup truck. I struggled to climb into his boat of a truck and slammed the door shut and bursted into tears. Don't cry, baby, he said, as his voice cracked. He reached for my hand and intertwined his fingers in mine. He pulled my head to his chest and held me. I love you so much, Esau, his shaky voice said, and I will do anything for you. I just cried and cried and cried in his arms. Finally, I calmed myself down, and he propped me back up into my seat and helped me buckle my seatbelt. We drove home in silence. My dad pulled up in our house, gave me a crooked smile, and told me to go inside and get some rest. Dutifully, I kissed him on the cheek, goodbye, and told him to have a good day at work. I went inside our little house, but what I didn't do was rest. See, if my soul could rest, I would have already done that. If my heart could rest, I would have already been happy again. The only way that seemed I could actually rest is if I cut my wrists where he had held me down on my bed so many months ago. I shut the world out with my bedroom door. Days went by, and all I seemed to do was lay in bed, watching the events that unfolded in August over and over in my head. At moments, I felt nothing. I was a dull gray of a girl, but the pain always came back. That overwhelming sadness filled my empty body, and I thought that's all I was. I was just a shell of a person. I went to therapy, school, and work. Therapy, school, work. Keep routine, my therapist said. Stay on track, my teacher told me. Just do it, my mind raced. Get it over with, that voice said again. I laid in bed one night as warm tears streamed down my face. They dropped my eyes down, down my cheek and to my chin. My face was wet with defeat. I looked down at my hands. They shaked as I held the silver blade between my fingers. Something so small can take away so much, just like something so small, like that tiny little speck in time can cause so much pain. I feel my bed sheets between my fingers. There are different sheets than the last time he was here, but still they feel the same. I've made my mind up. This is it. I draw the blade to my slender wrists, but I stop. Time seems to have frozen completely, and I'm stuck staring at my wrists while I hold the silver blade right above my skin. I throw the blade to the floor. The carpet silently catches it, and I am left staring at those tiny white squares that make up my ceiling. Life doesn't stop. I felt dead inside for so many months after my rape, but I wasn't. I was very much alive. I just wasn't living. He wasn't around to hurt me anymore. I will never forget what happened to me, and it has forever changed the way I look at life. 
Only I can push myself to pers persevere and reach my dreams. I have the power to react to whatever adversity has come my way. I have the power to live with purpose. Life isn't life without pain, but life also isn't life without happiness, depression, and love. Breaking free from my restraints was the most liberating act in my life so far. It was no thanks to the police, the failing court system, my fake friends, and even some of my family. It was because of me. The power to turn our lives around instead of just staying stuck in time is inside all of us. That's something that took me a long time to actually believe. Finding purpose in life is what helps me get through each and every day. My rape does not define me, but it has forever changed me. I live my life to the fullest and push myself to do what I thought was the unimaginable. Every day I remind myself how amazing life is and how you can find power within yourself to overcome anything. How to Become an Activist by Annie Clark and Andrea Pino. We are often asked, how do you become an activist? The answer is different for everyone. Violence is entrenched in our culture. It can be subtle and it can be vivid, and because of that, there are roles for every kind of person to play. While protesting and speaking out publicly might be ideal for some activists, for others, teaching their children or friends about consent is how they choose to exercise their activism. Though we all engage with activism differently, there are things allies can do on a daily basis to help chip away from the stigma of our violent culture and alleviate the shame and silencing our, silencing our society bestows upon survivors. Participate in the conversation. Ending our culture of violence should not be the sole responsibility of those who survive it. Call out rape jokes and comments that perpetuate violence. Get involved in your school's anti-violence organization and if there isn't one, start one. If you are not the survivor, work to center the voices of the survivors. Advocate for better federal, state, and local policy regarding consent and healthy relationship education. Boys and girls are exposed to the painful silence around violence at a very young age. We should not wait until they reach college age to start talking about consent. Learn about Title IX and make sure your friends, children, and partners know that all students have the right to a safe and equal educational experience. Give someone this book. It is difficult to encapsulate the power in every narrative in this book and the lessons shared in the beautiful words printed on these pages. For centuries, the stories of survivors have been kept in the shadows and kept from print, but we must free them and share them. Believed survivors, as we've said throughout this book and as our fellow survivors have reiterated, the most important thing is to believe survivors. Believing survivors is a type of radical everyday activism since we live in a society that suggests that you do completely the opposite. We believe you. I just want to take a minute to um, introduce those who were willing to come up and be part of this reading. 
Uh, this is Jennifer Gutierrez, <laughs> Abby Hanneran, Stephanie McCann, and Natalie Jersick. And uh, directly behind me is Isabella Calderon. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the listening process. And um, whether, whether you know that or not, it makes you an activist as well. Uh, and so I hope that you can take this out there and use it somehow. We did perform all of these readings um, with the permission of the publishers. And the book is in the library if you want to check it out. And it's an easy, easy read. And uh, I know that you will get something out of it. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. And there are brochures for the counseling department if you need any information, if you need to talk with anyone. Again, Suzanne is here if you want to talk with her um, or myself or any of the speakers today. Thank you so much.